Gobble, gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble, gobble. It's almost turkey day. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Grace of Giving podcast. We're your hosts, James Riley. And Grace Brasniewski. Well, folks, we are in the home stretch of 2020 here. We're approaching the holiday season, which may look pretty different for many of us. That's right. And I just do have to call out that fabulous turkey noise you made at the beginning, James. <laughs> Top notch. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, but we know a lot of people who usually travel or go see extended family may not be able to do that this year. And, and that's really tough. So as always, we just want to say we see you. Your Notre Dame development family really cares about you. And please always feel free to reach out. That's right, G. Thanks so much for mentioning that. We want to do all we can to boost morale and keep you feeling connected with our colleagues. In that spirit, we have a great guest joining us today. We're so happy to welcome to the show Academic Advancement Director for the Keough School of Global Affairs, Jay McAllister. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you. I Boy, I was not expecting the gobble, gobble sounds to come from you, James. So my <laughs> butterflies are gone now. You, I'm, I'm completely calm. You, uh, you helped me out. Thanks. That's so good to know. <laughs> Jay, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, I, you know, I, I come from a place that's uh, getting actually a lot of attention right now, two days after the election, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm. So uh, how you doing? Um, if I'm in the middle of the Steeler game, that accent can get pretty strong, but uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't give that to you. How do you say the how you's doing? Is that how? How you's doing? How you's doing. We, in Pittsburgh, they like to slam words together. So, ah. you know, I've got an aunt and uncle who's, oh man, it is a strong accent. And if they're going to go downtown, they'll say to you, Ian's want to go downtown and that. Wow. Which essentially would translate to, do you all want to go downtown <laughs> and that? I don't know what the end that is, <laughs> and but that. Um, that's, that's just how it works in Pittsburgh. So hilarious. We've so got we a couple it. folks in, from Pittsburgh, right? Because isn't like Kim Borza and um, Ryan Brennan, Ryan right? Brennan. Absolutely. Kim Borza played tennis at the University of Pittsburgh. Yes. I think she grew up outside of Pittsburgh. And then Ryan, same. Yeah, grew up, not, not so much the athlete part. I've seen him in action, but uh, <laughs> certainly grew up in Pittsburgh. So Nice. <laughs> that was, that was nice. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm the youngest of two. My mm. sister's eight years older than me. My parents were public service, uh, uh, public servants. My mom worked for the State Civil Service Commission. My dad was... Uh, he did a lot. Um, he was the first in his family to go to college. ROTC enabled him to do that. He lived, uh, my family's from Etna. It's a really small, um, very blue collar, still mill type neighborhood, just right outside of the city. When back in the day, you know, the, the, the mills were uh, right on the edges of the city. Uh, and then if you made it up a hill and out of the valley into the suburbs, uh, that, that was the testament. You made it, uh, you, you made something of yourself and your family. Um, so he went up. He went up to Erie, Pennsylvania, to Gannon University for college uh, with ROTC. He then ended up end up serving in, in in Vietnam as an Army Ranger. He did a wow. whole career in the Army. He ended up um, retiring as a one star general. And, and during all that, he also taught and was administrator at the University of Pittsburgh. And then his his final gig was uh, he was the deputy secretary for labor and industry uh, for Gom uh, Governor Tom Rich when when Tom Rich mm. was the governor of Pennsylvania. So that was pretty cool. It was quite. Um, quite a, quite a life to live up to but he was the you know this is a good old pittsburgh story he was the captain of his high school bowling team that was yes. his athletic accomplishment oh, nothing wow. against bowling but i always could bring that out to kind of keep his ego in check so as soon as i made varsity uh of, of any sport like you know football or basketball then um i felt like i i was pretty good in the house you had one up on him nice yeah love it 
You're funny. Uh, well, so Jay, you almost joined me on the dark side, which is also known as being a Michigan Wolverine. Um, so can you tell us about your path to attending Notre Dame and how your time was here? Yeah, you know, so I, I was legitimately a Michigan Wolverine for one year, um, and I've been trying to wash that stink off of me ever Uh-oh. since. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. <laughs> Ann Arbor was a good time. I'm, I'm still close with some of the friends uh, that I made my freshman year on my, my uh, same floor of my dorm. Yeah, I, I wanted to go to Notre Dame all along. Notre Dame had other plans for me. Uh, I didn't get in as a freshman, and, and I didn't want to be one of those one of those many in my area in, in Pennsylvania who just went to Penn State. I want to do something different. Um, so I, I got into Michigan, I went to Michigan, but, um, boy, I was sitting in that first game looking at that end zone, the maze in blue, it wasn't diagonal lines. And I was like, you know what? I can't, I got to try again. I got to try to get to Notre Dame. Uh, and I was fortunate to, to, to be able to, to transfer in. And, um, I do have a confession. Uh, when I, when I thought about sending you guys a note, wanting to do the podcast, th- mm-hmm. this, this question was why, uh, and, and if you'll let me, um, because I get to talk about my mom. And I get to, to, for all to hear, right. I can, I can send the link to, or I can one up my sister. Um, (laughs) My mom uh, is, is the strong, one of the strongest women I know. And she, she made my ability to come to Notre Dame possible. So a little bit of background on that. Um, Unexpectedly, my dad passed away when I was a junior in high school, Hmm. Uh, you know, kind of turns our world upside down and and we're just trying to get by. Um, And, and so I go to college, right. So first I don't get to Notre Dame. That's the first time my mom let me swear in the house. Mm. The, uh, the, uh, the letter came and she said, if you will just want to blow off some steam, that's okay. I, I, uh, I didn't trust her. I thought I'd still get in trouble. So I went into the basement and I said one little curse word and I didn't get yelled at. And so then I let it fly and it felt good. Um, <laughs> but, uh, when I told her I wanted to transfer, you know, that's, boy, you're going to rearrange your schedule. You're going to try to do that. And Grace, I, I don't know if you remember this, but at, at Michigan, you know, you come in as a freshman and you're only guaranteed housing as a freshman. Mm-hmm. So by oh. October, you better know who you're going to live with the next year as a sophomore off so, campus though. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there weren't that many spots to stay in the dorm and most people didn't want to um, once, once you got to that point. And so I already had signed a lease. So my mom let me transfer to Notre Dame and she paid for an apartment in Ann Arbor, Michigan that I stayed at for two nights that sophomore year when I went up to visit my friends. Uh, and so that was awesome, right? She just, she put everything aside. She didn't say no. She encouraged me the whole way. And, and that got me back to Notre Dame. Now it got me back to Notre Dame as an employee. I met my wife. I have a family, like moms are pretty special. And my, my mom is is definitely up there for a top five. So so this is a way for me, you know, I wanted to come on the podcast because like how often do you get to stand up or have a platform to be like, thanks Mm -hmm. mom. This is amazing. And, and, uh, you know, appreciate it. Nice. What's your so mom's name? Uh, Susan. Susan. Susan McAllister. Thank you, Susan. So we can just stop right now. Thanks, That's guys. Right. <laughs> not the <laughs> I got my Christmas gift early. I, you know, we're good. <laughs> so Jay, tell us a little bit about your career prior to coming to Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm an arts and letters grad. Uh, mm-hmm. I was an econ major here nice. at the university. Yeah. I, <laughs> I came in I switched a bunch, but I ended up with econ. I didn't want to know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and that tagline sums it up perfectly. What is it? Study anything, do everything. Yeah. You know, what, what, study anything, do everything. Something yes, like that. that's right. Um, study everything, do anything. There we go. There we go. Um, 
And so I embraced that. I, I initially graduated and I thought it would be interesting to go into finance. Uh, so thanks to my Notre Dame credentials, I was able to get a job at NBC. Uh, so at, time, at that time, General Electric was the primary owner of NBC and they had a financial management program and GE recruited heavily at Notre Dame. I was able to get that position, I think at the last second because NBC bought Universal Studios. So now I get to experience New York City. Then I get to go experience Los Angeles as we are helping with the due diligence for, uh, for that universal merger. merger. Um, but out there, I really just realized, you know, when they say finance at, at GE, especially it's you're an accountant. I just didn't enjoy it. It just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. It just, it, I wasn't strong in numbers. It just, I didn't get enjoyment out of it. So um, because Notre Dame gave me an opportunity to go to Washington DC the summer before my senior year, where I entered at this place called the Naval Criminal Investigative Service at the time, um, very small agency within the U.S. intelligence community, not really well known, uh, but I had a phenomenal experience and I'd kept in touch with the intern coordinator there. They offered me a full-time job. So then I moved to D.C. and I, I went into the intelligence field. Now NCIS has a TV show on CBS. They have spinoff shows. It's, yes. A lot of people know what it is. Um, uh, the joke we always used to say at, at NCIS was never could our agency actually solve a crime in an hour like they do on a TV show. Um, <laughs> But it was a phenomenal experience because then I, I got to scratch that itch of public service like my parents. That's right. And I also grew up with like those Tom Clancy novels. You know, I used to love mm-hmm. um, Jack Ryan and all, and all those. And uh, so I got to play, you know, Intel person for six years and, and play because I sat at a desk. Right. I, I mean, I did get to I spend some time on ships, uh, spent a lot of time in, in East Africa and the Middle East for, for some short spurts, six weeks here, four weeks there. Um, really just looking at things that might, uh, you know might try to hurt our, our sailors and our Marines that were around the world. Uh, so it was a phenomenal experience. It got me out into the world. Um, and then it really got me excited to try to come back and do something in the global affairs space uh, at Notre Dame. Um, I did have a quick, you know, so I, I realized a long time, uh, boy, I graduated a long time ago, back in 04, um, <laughs> that I always wanted to come back to Notre Dame. And I had a really, my rector at the time, his name's Ed Mack. I lived in O'Neill Hall. And Ed was great in saying, hey, do you miss college or do you miss Notre Dame? Go out into the world, do some things. You could probably always find your way back. And uh, I quickly learned I, I miss Notre Dame. I didn't just miss college. Uh, and that was my drive. You know, I have friends that are still working in the Intel community today, and their, their patriotism is what drives them. And I certainly have patriotism as well, but my drive is my love for the university. So as I started making career decisions, it started really with going from NBC then to NCIS. it's almost like Lou Holtz talked about, right? Whenever he would get jobs before the Notre Dame gig, he always had his Notre Dame clause um, that would get him out of his contract and he could go be the head coach of Notre Dame. James, maybe I got that wrong. You're you're That sounds right. History than I am. (laughs) Um, But I always felt that, right? I always took that. Like, what's the Notre Dame clause here? Does this get me, does this make my resume stronger to then eventually go work at Notre Dame? And so after NCIS, I was able to go and work at Carnegie Mellon University. So Mm -hmm. I was able to still do do work more on the research side for the Intel community and the three-letter agencies but um, really embraced teaching and learning administration and then actually starting to do some development work when we started doing um, some projects for private companies. So then, yeah, I, uh, I saw the, this posting for this thing called Academic Advancement Director. It was research at the time. Uh, that's, that's where I started. And then I transitioned to Keogh. And I, I put my hat in the ring. I thought I could make a compelling argument. And unfortunately, the university felt the same. So. Mm. Uh, so when you think about back to that um, earlier period in your career before you came back to Notre Dame, what's the most important lesson you learned that you really took with you? Comfort and chaos. Mm-hmm. 
comfort and chaos, I think, is what I learned the most out of, whether it was at NCIS, you know, we would, we'd have a pretty quick turnaround, right? You get into the office about 7 a.m. And if you're going to put something out to, to folks around the world, it had to be done by noon. It also had to go through, you know, several editing rounds. Um, and so you got to produce, right? And you've got to take all this crazy disparate information from all these different sources, and you've got five sentences to write it, right? And, and, and state everything you need to state for, for someone to make a decision. So yeah, you just get comfortable in that, right? You embrace it. Um, there's always going to be something that throws a monkey wrench into, uh, into what you're doing. And it's honestly over these past, what, eight months now or pandemic to see how the students have done that here at the Keogh School has just been awesome. It has been amazing. It's something that probably took me five years to figure out. Um, and they figured it out really quickly. So, so yeah, that's probably the biggest takeaway for me. When you thought about coming back to the university, what was one of the first things you wanted to do when you, when you got to campus? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question. What was the first thing I wanted to do? Um, I just wanted to walk. I just wanted to walk. It was, it was the end of June. Oh, nice. I wanted to to walk around campus, right? Because it was, I, I, if I could have, you know, had a do over at Notre Dame, I would have stayed for a summer semester. I remember some of my friends sharing just how special that was Mm because there weren't as many students on campus and it, it felt like it was yours. You owned it. It was your campus. So it was the end of June. I, here I am. I get, I get to finally work at Notre Dame. I, it'd be interesting if HR keeps the files. Cause man, I got, I went through a streak where I applied for every job at Notre Dame <laughs> and uh, I was not qualified for them and I never got calls back, which I never should have. <laughs> and, yes. uh, so yeah. So to finally get here, I just want to go for a walk and pretend like I, I own the place. So. You you hit something. You struck a, a bell with me or a tone with me because, you know, I'm from South Bend from from here originally, and so the the summer after my senior year in high school and be, and freshman year at Notre Dame, I would come to campus and ride my bike around. And we didn't have as many summer school students as we do now, so it felt like I kind of owned the campus and I got to know the campus really well. And I actually did that during the summers of all my years at Notre Dame, just walking around or riding my bike. And like you said, Jay, you just feel like you own the place because there's hardly any students around and it's quiet and serene and you can, you know, have some time to think and get away. Uh, so when you said that, I was like, that's, that's how I felt as well. When I love that, how tough it must be to have a culture where everybody can feel that mm. right in their own special way. What I love nothing more that when you're walking around campus and you see a student pick up trash, Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't know. They don't, they don't care if anybody's watching. They're just doing it because they want their little spot of heaven to be perfect. That's right. And I just, I love that. You just, you just don't get that anywhere else. So maybe Michigan, right? G. <laughs> well, we all know how I feel, <laughs> but Jay, you and I actually worked together quite a bit uh, when you were AD for research and I was on the storytelling team. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how your position now compares to that first one? Hmm. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first off, it was a blast working with you, Grace, when oh. we were, uh, when we were doing that. She's, I mean, James, you know, this. she's a triple threat, right? That's she's, right. she's, she's got the creativity. She's got the writing skills. She would tell me when thing when I wrote something that was junk, right? Like it was, <laughs> it was great. Um, and, and that is, um, it's, it's been really cool. I feel fortunate that I got to start, you know, there was never an AAD for research um, when I took on that role. And now we have an AAD, uh, Karen Deke, who does, it, it's now research and innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Research in the Idea Center. 
And so that's neat to see that grow. Um, I think um, the big difference is just how, how better versed I am in the subject matter of the Keough School. You know, my, my career for the most part was involved in many different perspectives of global affairs. You know, I learned about this launch of something called a Keough School when I was in East Africa. Um, wow. The one time I got to like an actual internet, you know, connection and saw this as an alum in my email box and, and thought, boy, that was cool. You know, because at the time I was working and, and we were doing some interesting things in East Africa and you saw, um, I guess I was just a little bit disappointed because we, you know, we'd throw the locals soccer balls or go play a pickup soccer game with them, which was fun, but we weren't, what were we doing to really help? And then you saw other countries uh, building schools, building hospitals, doing, and, and then I'm contextualizing. I mean, I, I, we, I'm sure we were doing a lot more than what I saw. But when the Kios, when, you know, Notre Dame says, hey, we're going to come out, we're going to take this holistic approach and we're going to help people you know, from all different aspects of their lives all around the world. I was like, man, yeah, I want to get that. Exactly. That's what I want to get on board with. Mm -hmm. So I think I went away from the question, but to come back, (laughs) you know, so I can more naturally talk about the substance of the Keogh school. Um, I think it also helps that it doesn't take long for a benefactor or someone, uh, you know, outside of the university to understand like, why should Notre Dame be strong in Irish studies? That's a but it's pretty quick, right? You, you got that, right? Why, why should Notre Dame want to bring kids from all around the world, students, adults from all around the world to help with issues like poverty? I, okay, yeah, proximity to mission makes a lot of sense. I think because I could only go so deep in like say nanotechnology or microplastics or cancer research, microplastics in, in streams or cancer research, or you know, these precision health, these amazing things that we're doing at the university. It took me a lot longer to figure out the messaging. So I think I, think I finally got there, just took a while. Uh, and in the Keo role, I've been able to just get off and running immediately. So, Kind of related to that, well, very related to the Keo role. Can you tell us, Jay, uh, a little bit more about your working relationship with Dean Appleby and just how important having a strong Dean-AAD relationship is in general? Yeah, I, well, I think it's paramount. I, and mm. I think you see it through past successes. I mean, look at what has been done what has happened in arts and letters with john mcgreevy and Maria sure. Squally. what's happened at the college of science with allison uh, slaybach and mary galvin um when you have that close bond oh, my predecessor dylan reed mm-hmm. what him and, and dean appleby did to get this school launched right when you, you you have to have the trust you've got to have the connection um you gotta you're, you're the voice of the dean uh and so you got to take that seriously it's a sacred trust and and when you do it well boy we're, we can be really strong and uh, in, in satisfying the priorities of that dean, for Scott, um, I don't know if you'd like me contextual. This is this is something I th- I've been thinking about. Like, how do you describe Scott? Like, how do you you know? Family asked me, friends asked me, folks around campus asked me, how do you how, how do you describe Scott? How do you describe your relationship with him? And and it finally dawned on me over the summer in July. Uh, he's the old wise man we all need in our lives, right? Maybe sage is a better word. Mm. He, listen, he's older. It's it, I think he's fine with that. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> he's the old wise man. Uh, you know, here we were being very socially distant and, and, and smart about things. We're sitting on his porch. We're, we're uh, having our meeting and he's imparting this wisdom to me um, that I needed. And then halfway through his niece walks up from down the street and she's there because he has her reading the great books and they're having discussions about them a couple times a week or maybe wow. once a week. Uh, and then 20 minutes later, you know, a colleague walks by. Scott, I'll see you next week for the, you know, I can't wait to catch up on so-and-so. Um, and then another uh, family member comes by uh, on his wife's side um, to talk with him about some, some issue that was bothering her. And 
uh, he is is just that type of person. He's the old mm. wise man, right? You you know anything anytime I can be with him uh, and soak in some of that knowledge, I am I am for the better. So that's great. That was that was really what attracted me to the role, uh, and I think we've been able to form that bond, and uh, feel very fortunate for it. Well, you referenced a little about um, sort of the transitions that have happened on your team. So can you just tell us a little bit about how the AAD team has evolved since you first joined? Yeah, I think I think we have just taken off. And there's, I think there's, I think there's one because there's a shift I think we're seeing when we, when we look at philanthropy, it's, it, it seems to me um, in certain contexts that we're getting a lot more issues based, right? Someone wants to know what we're doing in poverty. What are we doing in cancer? What are we doing in clean water? And that's not just going to be one school or college. So I think the interdisciplinary nature of our work now, um, we're working a ton more together. And I think that's made us a lot stronger. Um, I also think our development IQ has gone through the roof. You know, we had, we, we have, uh, we brought in someone for the arts and architecture, Katie Ornchuk, who was on, I think a couple mm-hmm. of podcasts ago, mm-hmm. 14 years of development experience. That's massive, right? She's just, she's hitting the ground running. Um, Allison, I mentioned Allison over in college of science. She's been in development in some form or fashion for a decade. So I think that's pretty cool. I, I actually know what a DAF stands for now. So like I, I've made some progress in four years. Uh, the donor advice fund, I you know, just make sure I got that right. Um, just checking so, yeah, in. <laughs> just checking in. Do I have, don't ask me the difference between CRT and DAF, but um, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. But uh, yeah, I think our IQ has gone off the roof and, and we're, we're fortunate in Michael Longo as our lead to really be having us firing on all cylinders. Speaking of a, uh donor advised fund or CRT, is there a gift that you're proudest to have helped facilitate for the university? Can I give the corny answer and then, and then give sure. a specific answer? Sure. Um, any gift that comes in, I, I feel so proud of because I feel like a family's let me into their lives. Hmm. Um, I feel like they've trusted me enough to share a dream, a passion, uh, an experience. I mean, something, you know, everybody in their own way holds this place in such a special part of their heart that I feel, you know, really good about the fact that, well, they've, they've done something that's going to strengthen that, that's going to expand it. Mm -hmm. um, That's going to show their love of the university. Uh, And so that's what I'm, I'm really proud of. There's, there's, I want to, I wrote it down because it's a, it's a quote that I absolutely love um, that when I became a father, I tried to think about, um, but it feel, I feel like it applies here. And it's, it's a British author. His name's Ken Robinson. And he says, you know, every day, everywhere, our children spread their dreams beneath our feet. We should tread softly. Um, and, I, wow. and I really kind of value that and, and embrace that in our work. Um, you know, a specific gift. There's a lot. I'm sure you guys hear that. You know, so how do you pick your, you know, favorite kid? Uh, <laughs> There's been some really interesting ones. I, I think one of the more recent ones that I really think showed us that the, the, we were getting the point across, right? With the vision of the dean, the vision of the school, we're four years old and, and um, we're really made some great progress. It was a, you know, a gentleman who's, whose family business is in Spain, came to the United States eight or nine years ago to Washington, D.C. Um, to, to settle with his family there and run the business out of, out of there for, for you know, North America and Latin America and other places around the world. And it was just from start to finish, you know, I, I meet with him with the, with his regional development director, um, for a meeting during a game, right. For an hour, we get some excitement there. Then we get Dean Appleby to DC a couple months later. They have a great 
great meal where the fundraiser and I kind of just stared at each other for three hours because they just talked to each other and really formed a bond very quickly. Uh, it was Chris Baguer, so I, you know, that was great. Mm, you know, he's such a, he's easy on the eyes there. Uh, <laughs> I hear he's a beard now, though, so it might he be. He does, he does. But, uh, but yeah, and then, you know, and then that led to a few months later, uh, we went and we, we pitched an idea and we got some feedback and we learned a lot. Um, and then, it led to another follow-on meeting with the dean where they really just got down to the, to the brass tacks of helping our students, providing fellowship funds, and doing it in a big way over, over the next five years. So I thought um, that was just really rewarding because I think I got to see the whole cycle of it all. Um, but it was, it was again, it was, it, it was also an interesting life lesson because this is someone who had been with the university uh, or kind of exposed to the university. No alum, you know, kids uh, came to Notre Dame, two kids are here now. Um, and it was really interesting to learn how he approached philanthropy. He said, you know, my, uh, these other things that I support, I, I am essentially best friends with the people that run this, right? I'm very mm. close. Uh, I treated his family. And he said, we're, we're only three years into our relationship. You know, we're, we're in the very beginning stages. So this is going to be good. This is going to be long. This is going to be fruitful. Um, but walk with me a little bit. And, and that was a good lesson. That was, that was a good lesson for me. And, and now we're, we're helping dozens of kids be able to come and have an internet education. So pretty cool. Very cool. Um, so how has the transition to remote work been for you, especially in regards to interacting with international donors, which I would assume Keel has a fair amount of. We do. We do. I think we've got a good group or we're, we're looking to expand. Um, yeah, there's, you know, on the personal front, uh, I came into the office for this podcast and it was exhausting. Like I, mm. I woke up this morning, I took a shower. I had to put clothes on. Right? <laughs> I had to, I had to tuck in my shirts, uh, brush my teeth. And I had to commute. I had to commute 20 minutes down to campus. I'm going to go home and take like a three hour nap. This is exhausting. Uh, I've not been used to this. That's right. So, you know, so on that, you know, well, to totally flip of the script for our international donors, it's been, um, I think for a lot of us, we're so much more comfortable with doing things online now. So, you know, for a lot of our international donors, they would really circle, let's say if they're on our advisory council, they'd circle that weekend in the fall when our council would meet over a football weekend to make sure that might be their one trip to the United States. Maybe, maybe it's in the middle of a two week stretch and they're going to do business and they're going to see other family or whatever it might be, but they would prioritize that. So we would get that in-person time with them for three days, but once a year. And now since March, we've seen them four or five times. It's all been virtual, so we certainly miss the in-person. But, you know, we we really liked an idea coming out of Arts and Letters where they did drinks with the deans, right? Let's take five or six couples or families to just spend an hour with the dean, whether it's over coffee or whether somebody has a drink in hand, whatever it might take, you know, whatever makes sense. That's been great. We've had some council meetings that have now been virtual, not just a conference call, but Zoom. So we've been able to able to interact in that way. Um, and I, so I think that's really opened our eyes to, you know, we're going to keep doing this even when things mm-hmm. go back to, to a more normal state or a new normal. But that's that I think has helped. We've also had to be really mindful, like we are with our, our U.S.-based donors. A lot of our international donors are really focused on helping their local communities right now. You know, we've, we've got some over in, in Southeast Asia. Um, not only at the pandemic, but they're having flooding. There's there's some natural disaster type situations happening, uh, and they've got to be very mindful and they want to be very very cognizant of that. And then our folks, you know, are running businesses or having being in very senior levels where they've got 
spaces and locations all around the world and they've had a real trouble getting to them mm. um you know we had a gentleman who's kind of been stuck in venezuela for months now and can't get to what he needs to in europe and in miami so that's that's been an interesting one for us too where we've had to be very mindful of that that we want to have them engaged but also recognize they're they're just trying to to scramble a little bit too you know, thinking about my next question, it's that weird part of the week right now where my 11th grader and my sixth grader are both in school and my wife is actually on campus teaching her Moreau class. So I have the whole house to myself. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your family, Jay. Ooh, well, we're coming up on it. So the last time our country had an inauguration day, I met a girl uh, for a drink out in Elkhart uh, nearby where we are, like 30 minutes from campus, I guess. Mm. And um, it was a gloomy day. I was actually, I was sick as a dog. I had, I had a cough and cold, but I, di- I didn't want to cancel, right? I didn't want to cancel. And she got out of her car and it was one of those where like the sky brightened and the sun came out. She had this, never forget, she had like a cream color, white color. Yeah, it, yes. Okay, okay. I feel you. Um she had that this kind of like just very like white uh winter coat on and then this just beaming smile and i was like oh i'm in trouble oh okay this is interesting <laughs> um and it was 20 months later we were married um you know i became a i became a husband and i i became uh, a father to to her now our, our little girl uh, mm-hmm. libby who's six and so yeah pretty cool that you know now we got a first grader who's doing virtual school yes. and um my wife works at home. She works for General Mills, who's based out of Minneapolis, but she works remotely. And so she's, mm. uh, we get to test a lot of different things that they're working on. So last week was, here's four different types of Cheerios and which do you like better, right? Which ones work better in milk and which ones, oh. you know, and the difference is one gram of sugar, two grams fiber, those type of things, which is a lot of fun. The three of us have a lot of fun doing that. So have you ever done the, like, guess the Cheerio <laughs> flavor game where you get like bags of Cheerios that you have yeah. to guess. That's pretty fun. Yes. That, what, huh. What's your favorite? Coconut for some strange reason. Oh. Yeah. That sounds good. I was going to say pumpkin spice Cheerios all the oh, way. Oh, there you go. That is, you know, that's that doesn't work. I'm, I'm not a big pumpkin spice person, but they in, the girls in my house absolutely love it. So <laughs> um, I do. In the summertime times, they do blueberry. I, oh, that's fan. right. Yeah, I've, I've tried it, but not not a fan. Now, I, um, I, I also, you know, in, in this question uh, – I can be a little competitive oh. and I feel like maybe I could uh, be a, be a first of something. I wanted to be the first AAD and then Katie beat me to it on this podcast. When, when will this um, <laughs> podcast air? It will air. So not next Tuesday, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that, I believe. Is that right also here? right before Thanksgiving. Yes. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> interesting well you know hey if uh if it's okay and hopefully not too many people if i haven't gotten to them yet uh, i haven't really shared this many with uh with many people but um a week after that we're having a baby so oh, wow so that's pretty cool nice that's awesome jay yeah See, congratulations yeah we're pretty we're pretty excited a week after this podcast Air, well so Air. december 2nd is currently what yeah. we're what we're scheduled for right nice. now it feels weird to say we've been you know Nice. Been a little quiet on that front. We're gonna be surprised. We don't we don't know boy or girl yet, so it'll be uh, it'll be fun. Some say it's fifty fifty. 
some say. <laughs> some say. Uh... Nice. Awesome. Well, um, right along those lines of, of family, uh, what do you like to do outside of work? Uh, I'll own it. I am, I am the stereotypical white suburban male. I like to golf. Um, I love nature and I love challenging mm. myself. And so golf's just perfect for me. I'm not very good, but I enjoy, me I enjoy neither. the challenge. I love being out in nature. It's also nice to drive around on a golf cart and have a couple of bever- adult beverages mm-hmm. every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, like so that. I'm a big fan of that. And then <laughs> I'll admit it. I like cutting the grass. That probably is really lame. I did say. that at lunchtime today and it was, did you, uh, it was like 70 degrees out or 65 and yeah. I was out there just enjoying the breeze. I'm jealous. You know, that's, that's my time. I put on my, put on the noise canceling headphones. I Did catch up on my podcasts. <laughs> I, uh, and then at the end it's, you know, you, you, something's done, right. You saw the start and finish to something. That's, that's right. kind of cathartic for me. So I, I like it. Um, I can't believe I admitted it out loud, but yeah. So winter's <laughs> going to be hard. If you just see me pacing my lawn in the winter, you'll know, I'm just trying to like simulate what happens the rest of the year. I know something else you like to do. And What's you that? might have to share your routine, but you like to work out, right? You lift weights and all that. I do. I do. I enjoy it. I, um, I do. I, I really, I wasn't, I was kind of a meathead in college. Hmm. I definitely went through that phase of, you know, I'm cool based upon how much I can bench press. Um, <laughs> my friends made fun of me. I, you know, I'm 5'10 and I ha- kind of have these shorter arms. So they called me T-Rex um, because they were 6'2 <laughs> or 6'3. And they were very frustrated because I could, I could lift a lot more because I didn't really have to go as far. That's right. Because I had short arms. That's um, physics. <laughs> yeah. So, so I went through that phase, but I got to tell you when I, when you get out into the working world, Grace, maybe you felt this, you've, you've had to, you know, transition from college to the working world a lot. Uh, it's been much more recent for you than it has for James and I. Um, those first couple of jobs, you're sitting all, uh, you know, in a, in a desk all day, and I was just so antsy. I needed an outlet. So yeah, I started running. I started doing more, more, you know, working out type stuff, exercising. So it's been fun. And with with the pandemic, we've um, transformed a part of the basement into a little gym. So I've actually uh, mm. really enjoyed that. I am a I'm a huge fan of The Rock, Dwayne yes. Johnson. No, sure, sure. He, uh, <laughs> really, really bearing it all here. I, um, <laughs> he has his own gym that he calls the Iron Paradise. And so I, oh. I got a little flag that says the Iron Paradise that I've hanging up in our little gym to try to pretend I'm the rock. Hey, you need inspiration. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's kept you hopeful during this crazy pandemic time right now? Uh, honestly, I got to say strong women. Um, you know, we talked about my mom, mm-hmm. my wife, my daughter, my niece, and my sister they've all had to go and, and overcome some pretty big hurdles over the last year, uh, whether pandemic related or not. And they have done it. It's just awesome in spades, right? They've done it without any complaints. They've done it with style, with grace. Um, I'll give you one example. My niece graduated from Villanova a couple of years ago. She, she took a job with a defense contractor that helps do an, uh, analysis of, of drones when they go and kind of scan different places over, uh, overseas. And so when the pandemic hit, she was in Afghanistan uh, and she was only supposed to be there for four months. And she ended up having to be there for about eight. Um, she didn't complain at one point. It was an, it was an Italian base that she was on. And, you know, when the, that was the part where, when Italy was really having a, a bad time with the pandemic, mm-hmm. her roommate at the time got a cold, got the sniffles and went to the doctor on base. Well, they freaked out. Not in the, in the appropriate way they probably should have, but she had to be quarantined for two weeks 
in something called a Connex box where it's, um, you know, they like what's on the back of tractor, tractor trailer trailers. They convert those in housing for folks overseas at certain oh. military bases. So no windows, Ooh. thin, long spaces with a cot, you know, makeshift bathroom. And she was in there for two weeks. Wow. So, I, I, you know, it's just, it's, it's, that's what keeps me hopeful. Strong women. I got strong women in my life. Mm-hmm. They've always been there to, to guide me in the right way. So that's, that's what keeps me hopeful. That is great. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in the spirit of the season, do you have a favorite Thanksgiving memory or tradition you'd share with us? You know, I'm not a big Thanksgiving fan. I'm a Christmas guy. I want to get it out of the way. I want to get my Christmas lights up. I want to channel my inner, inner Clark Griswold. Um, so I just want, I'm, you know, but, I, but I'm also a stickler. I do not put lights up for Thanksgiving. You have to give Thanksgiving its due. But man, as soon as that day is done, get out there. Um, I will share a story. It's funny. It's embarrassing. But, you know, hey, we're supposed to have fun on the podcast, right? <laughs> I, we, my, my, um, my cousin would always host Thanksgiving at her home uh outside in one of the suburbs of pittsburgh and um when i was in high school i i played football and i was on the swim team um and i got injured my junior year of high school uh and had to have shoulder surgery uh, reconstructive surgery so i i put on i put on some weight i put on maybe 25 30 pounds i wasn't being active but i was still eating like a typical teenage boy um but i wanted to get back in swimming <laughs> I should just start. I, so I was concerned how I might look in the old speedo, right? Oh, I was a little sure. nervous about getting back in the pool. I was like, oh boy, I'm an awkward teenager. Um, yeah, yeah. It wasn't, you know, I was, I was worried. I was worried. Um, so I found our camcorder at the time when, you know, back then it was like one of these big monstrosity camcorder things. And we, uh, I, um, I can't believe I, I, I wanted to film myself how I would look in a speedo, right? Mm-hmm. And so I did that and it was very PG and it was fine. <laughs> so we're at Thanksgiving. I didn't know I had recorded in between um, recordings of like my niece and nephew, right? When they were like two or three years old. Oh yeah. And so I'm down with the kids playing in the basement and I hear this eruption of laughter <laughs> upstairs because the adults, I didn't know what was happening, but the adults <laughs> were, my aunt must've said, Oh, what I want to, the grandkids aren't here. Or the, you know, my, my, the little babies aren't here. I want to see what they're doing. And my mom must've been like, Oh, I have the video. Let me put the video in. And a couple minutes in it, then like shades to me, like as a teenager trying to be like, all right, am I going to look good? Am I going to, am I going to be okay? Um, and they have never let me look wow. that down. So every Thanksgiving it comes up or if I'm not there, I'm getting the text messages. Oh, um, you better go out and get a speedo this weekend so you can <laughs> wear it for Thanksgiving this year. No, no, nobody wants that chance. Nobody wants that. <laughs> But it is. It's, you know, it's one of those. I, I don't mind sharing because it's one of those great family, that you know, stories that you always talk about. Absolutely. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, Jay, I can't believe we are about uh, at the end of our time today. It's gone so quickly. Uh, but before we 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 end our show today, we'd like to throw a quick five your way. So that's okay. five rapid fire questions. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. All right. Favorite Thanksgiving dish. My aunt Donna's stuffing. First thing you noticed about the Notre Dame campus? Uh, the smell of yeast in the air. Oh, the ethanol plant. You know how, the eth- oh, the eth- okay, ethanol plant. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I haven't smelled it much recently, but um, yeah, they- I think we had showed up to campus uh, when I, my parents first brought me. I was probably 10 years old, and it was just such a strong scent. And that was my you know, first time I'd walked on campus, and it's stuck with me ever since. Mm. It's a good smell. I like it. I really do. <laughs> it, it feels like home. 
Uh, favorite city you visited? This is tricky, but I'll, I'll go Stuttgart, Germany. Stuttgart. I had a, a great work trip there when I was with uh, NCIS. It just happened to be when they were celebrating their Oktoberfest. Oh, just um, happened to coincide. Just, ha- you know, funny how that worked out. Um, <laughs> funny how that worked out. And uh, it was a blast. Mm. And the people were so nice. I got lost on a couple of trains. And I, I guess they could tell I was an American, but they would come up and start talking in German and quickly realized that was not for me. I didn't know it. Uh, and then immediately switched to English, but, but so incredibly helpful. Uh, and it was beautiful and it was just, it kind of hit all the, it hit all the right notes. So most memorable Notre Dame sporting moment for you. Mm. October 28th, 1990, Notre Dame played Pitt at Pitt stadium. Uh, I mm. think that was probably my first Notre Dame game. Uh, so my dad took me, that was when Pitt stadium was not where the Steelers played. You know, now they share high oh, sure. So it was actually on the campus. It's now where Pitt's uh, basketball arena is. Um, but it was, you know, where the University of Pittsburgh is, there's also an amazing uh, medical f- uh, facility campus, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And so this hill was incredibly steep. You know, Pittsburgh's got some pretty pretty mountainous terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, so they called it Cardiac Hill. So you'd walk up Cardiac Hill to get to the stadium. And then the stadium just kind of like, like Michigan Stadium, right? You walk in, it just drops like a bowl. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very impressive. Um, so here I am as an eight-year-old, just you're walking up there, I'm exhausted. And then you walk in and you're surrounded by, you know, 60, 70,000 people. And that was when Rocket Ishmael was playing for the Irish. Mm-hmm. I think he, he ran back like a period, he caught like some 75-yard touch. I'd never seen somebody move that fast. Mm. Um, and then, you know, so I'm inquisitive. I'm talking to my dad about Notre Dame. Here's my dad talking about, you know, he's an Irish Catholic. He's the first in his family to go to college. Notre Dame was like, oh my gosh, could anybody from my family ever go there? Uh, and so the way he talked about it, I, I became obsessed with Notre Dame. So, and then I was able to be the first in the family to, to come. Nice. Uh, thing you're most grateful for in 2020. I'm going to go with Pete, not the mayor. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, Pete in Ireland, they have those, they're bricks, right. That they take kind of from the bogs and then they turn it into fuel. So they'll have the, you'll, you'll put them in, in, in an oven or a, a fireplace and you'll, you'll burn it. And it's, and it's fuel and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of from the bogs that have, it just, it almost looks like mud. It's like a real dark color. Um, that smell is so amazing. Every time I go over to Ireland, that I, mm. I get some sent to me. Uh, and so on those days when I've been stressed or now that it's getting cold and I just want to relax, I light one of those little bricks and, um, the girls in my house are not a fan of that smell, but it smells <laughs> so good. So, wow. so that's been, that's been kind of a nice thing, uh, that's kind of helped me through. Nice. You piqued my you piqued my interest in the peat, no doubt. <laughs> I will I will send some your way. Aww. It's it's um yeah, it's it really is. It's it's a good spot. Nice. Well, Jay, thanks so much, man, for taking time to to speak with us today. I I, I must say that seeing you on my computer, hearing your voice, uh I genuinely miss you. Miss seeing you in the hallway and saying hello. It's just been so long. Likewise, it is, it is so good to see you too. You two are, uh, you know, two of the, two, two of our favorite sons and daughters at Notre Dame. It's, it's always been a blast working with you and it's been nice to connect. Thanks for letting me do this. This is a little out of my comfort zone. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. We, we appreciate you and, and hope that you'll come back again soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, James, I'm already listening to Christmas music. No, are you really? Oh yeah, first week in November it goes on, and I've been listening to one of my favorites on repeat already. Repeat, and which is that, G? Our closing jingle. Uh...
Thanks for listening to the Grace of Giving podcast. We're your host, James Riley. And this has been the Grace of Giving podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, stay golden.